thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So here we are continuing our study of the book of Leviticus. Last week we took a large uh, swath over the book and understood its overall structure. We know that this is a book that has two panels, two fundamental parts joined together by the celebration of the Day of Atonement in the middle. On the one hand we have the liturgy, on the other hand we have morality. This is a book that is part of a larger story called the Pentateuch. Therefore, we cannot read it independently. Oh, yes, and before I continue, uh, kudos to those of you who are bringing notes, because it really helps if you can take notes. It will help you remem- remember better what uh, you're going to be hearing. The Pentateuch is necessary for us to understand Leviticus, but not just the Pentateuch. In fact, all of Scripture. You will see at one point I'll be quoting from the book of Baruch, which is a book written around uh, the year 580 B.C. when the kingdom of Judah had been destroyed and they have been all shipped into exile in Babylon. And Baruch is actually quoting from Leviticus. So, there is a very wide uh, panoramic vision we have to keep in mind when we deal with Scripture, all of it. Old and New Testament. And what we're trying to do here is knit it together. See the forest from the trees. At the same time, as we study this book, we need to remind ourselves that all Scripture, all of Scripture, is profitable. St. Paul. Even though Leviticus is about a lifestyle and a culture with which we have no connection today. Reading Leviticus might feel or seem like a bunch of us going to Egypt visiting the pyramids. There is a bunch of drawings we call hieroglyphs, but we have no clue what they look like. Other than maybe, you know, road signals or something. Turn left here, get lost, I don't know. We don't understand them. Leviticus might have that feel, so we have to recover that. And... More importantly, we have to understand it in our own context, in the context of the lives we lead as Christians, because that's what we're really after. If God spoke to Moses to tell him something about how the Israelites were supposed to live in the wilderness, then whatever God said echoes in our lives today. He's still saying it. The particulars may change, but the heart of the message rings true. 
And that's what we want to understand. Because in understanding this, we come to a better understanding of who God is. And when we understand God better, we are more or better equipped to receive the grace we need to worship Him in truth and in spirit. The grace of God flows continuously, but it must encounter a fertile ground, which is our mind, open to receive it and open to be fruitful. Without a proper understanding of Scripture and a good grounding in the tradition of the church, very easy for us to go haywire and come up with our own inventions and our own uh, explanation. We want to avoid that. Today, we're, we begin our focus on the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, which are all about sacrifice. All about sacrifice. And I'm going to begin by quoting Calvin. In his commentary on the book of Leviticus, he had the honesty and the forthrightness of saying, saying it exactly the way Protestant will apprehend this book and try to comprehend it. This is what he wrote. In these first chapters of the book of Leviticus, the ones we're going to be dealing with, Moses will treat generally of the sacrifices. But since we read of many things here, the use of which has passed away, key on this, the use of which, those sacrifices, the use of which has passed away, and others, the grounds of which I do not understand, I intend to contend myself with a brief summary. He's saying basically two things. Number one, I'm not so sure what's the purpose of this book because the use of sacrifices has passed away. Why? Because in the Protestant comprehension, Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all. And after his sacrifice on the cross, there are no more sacrifices. If that's the case, what do you do with this book? What do you do with those first cha seven chapters talking all about sacrifices? So in Protestant circles, there are two schools of thoughts. One, this is passé. We don't need it. Their problem is that they're faced with that verse from St. Paul. All of Scripture is profitable. How is that profitable? Right? They have to grapple with that. The second is the other extreme. No, no, no. It is still Binding. All those sacrifices are still binding. you got to do them. Well, that actually moves you towards a Jewish way of understanding it. To the Jews, if they were to be able to rebuild the temple, that's what they would do. Right? What is the Catholic answer? The Catholic answer is yes and no. It is still binding, but not the way you think it is. Right? And we're going, to, we are, we're going to understand that as we go through. In fact, Calvin describes the Israelites addressed by Moses as a rude people. Rude people. Well, in that case, we're all in good company because we are all rude people. After all, Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel of St. Luke, addressing the Israelites, told them, If you who are evil... When your son asks you for a loaf of bread, you don't give him a rock, how much more your Father in Heaven will give you what you need? If you, who are rude, no, evil, right? But to Calvin, with the colonialist European conception of superiority, those 
Middle Easterns were rude. So, you know, what can you do? You've got to deal with rude people. They needed training provided by otherwise pointless rules from God so as to avoid self-rule according to their own foolish inventions. In other words, exact rules about trifles prove to be useful as types of things to come, but more practically, they act as constraints on the people's imagination and reason. To sum it, obedience is learned only in the exercise of ignorant subjection. His view, God gave him all these things to do, you need to keep them busy. Otherwise, if you let them to do what they needed to do, they'll go back to the golden calf and do a bunch of other stupid things. So he just gave them a bunch of other things to do just to keep them busy and learn and teach them obedience. Is that it? What's wrong with that approach to Scripture? And, and cue on that. This is important. Doesn't it feel like somebody just hung a very heavy rock around you and pulling you down? Yeah. Anytime you have an interpretation of Scripture that pulls you down, pulls you down to nothingness, to insignificance, to emptiness, to a behavior that you know would not be the one you would want, how much more the divine trinity. Any interpretation that brings the divinity down to us instead of lifting, instead of lifting us up towards the divinity is wrong. It's simple as that. It's very basic common sense. But it's at the same time very deep theology. Yeah? Alright. So let's go through this overview of the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. And then we'll get back into this, into it in more detail. As I said, chapters 1 through 7 constitute the first section of the book of Leviticus. And I do, I do suggest you read them. Between today and next week... Make a little sacrifice and read them slowly. Don't rush through them. Don't skip words. Just read them. They outline the basic modes of sacrifice. So we're going to list and describe the several classes of offerings to be presented to God in the sanctuary. Before we do that, we're going to focus a little bit more. Chapters 1 through 5 are addressed to the general people, everybody. So it's a mistake to think that Leviticus is to the Levites, the priests. It isn't. The Hebrew name of the book, I'll remind you, is Wayikra, which means, and he called him. It's not a book that is meant as a manual for the priesthood. Yes, there are sections of it, for instance, chapter 6 and 7, addressed specifically to the priest. But in fact, it's addressed to all of Israel. Okay? It's addressed, 1 through 5, addressed to everyone to individual Israelites, to their leaders who wish to worship God, or were required by circumstances to offer a particular sacrifice. God is telling them how to do that. God is taking time to explain in detail how He wants sacrifices to be offered. I just want you to think about that. Why would God Almighty, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, spend time Detailing how sacrifices are to be offered. Just think about that. Something to really think about. Okay. He tells them what may be offered. Animals, birds, grain, so forth. What procedure they must follow. And they specify that the sacrifice was performed primarily by the priest. Primarily by the priest. But could occasionally require some sort of participation on the part of the donors of the sacrifice. 
So it isn't only, you don't show up at the sanctuary, you hand over the animal, and then you take off, you know, go to Las Vegas while he's doing, no, no. Sometimes you have some, some part to do, and I'll tell you what part it is. And it's not an easy part, but you have a part to play. So right now, right there, here is a corollary to what I just told you. The reason why, the reason why, in my view, this is me talking now, the Latin rite, the old Latin rite mass needed, needed reform was precisely what I just said. Okay. Let me explain myself. Those of us who attend the new Mass, the Novus Ordo, in the Latin Rite, can, are at risk of losing sight of one fundamental principle. And that is, the priest does 80% of the job, we only do the rest. The Novus Ordo Mass tends to make us think that it's sort of equal, 50-50. He does some things, we do other things, but we are just as important as he is. Uh Uh-uh. And the proof is in the pudding. How? A priest alone can celebrate Mass. You and I all together here cannot. What does that suggest? Who's essential? The priest. Right? In the old Latin Mass, it's almost the other, the extreme. Although it is not meant this, this way. It's a beautiful Mass, by the way. I love it. I do love the old Latin Mass. Don't get me wrong. But... You could be tempted, you, on a basic principle, if you don't know what's going on, be tempted to think, everything is done by the priest, I have nothing to do. Or very little, just have to follow, respond here and there, and that's it. But that is not the case. So here's a question for you. What is your participation in the Mass? Why are you there? Other than the fact you've been told you need to be there every Sunday. Why are you there? Have you ever been in a place, invited to some party, and you show up, you say, why am I here? Right? Is that a good feeling? To be in a party, you have no idea why you're there? Invited to a wedding, you're there, you have no idea why you should be there? Is that a good feeling? If it's the wedding of your brother, and I came to you and I asked you, why are you there? Can you tell me in a sentence why you're there? My brother is getting married, right? It's a sentence, right? I'm not going to put you to the test, but I want you to think about it. Can you tell me in one sentence why you're at Mass? The way you would say it if it was your brother's wedding? With the same happy smile? Can you? If you can't, would you agree we have an issue? Yeah. We have confusion today because Catholics have lost their identity. They don't know who they are, what they're supposed to do. And before any reformation can begin, liturgical, political, cultural, otherwise, you've got to recover your identity. You've got to know who you are. And a lot, much of our liturgy is rooted in Leviticus. So by studying this book and reflecting on what God told the Israelites to do, hopefully we're going to recover a little bit of that. And hopefully would be able to go to Mass with a much better focus. Let's keep on going. Chapters 1 through 3 outline the three principal types of sacrifices. 
that were offered regularly by individual Israelites and their families, by kings and leaders, and often by the entire community. And a chapter is devoted to each of them. All right. So those who are taking notes, start writing this down. The first one is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. In Hebrew, and those of you who understand Arabic will understand the word because we got it from there. Ola. The ascending. It is called the ascending because it is a whole burnt offering. A holocaust. That's the other word for it. A holocaust. The whole animal is burned, save the skin. Everything is burned. Okay? Called the Ola. That's the first one. Whole burnt offering. The second is called the grain offering. And again, those of you who understand Arabic will understand the word, minha, gift. That's what's also called the gift offering. It's a gift. Okay? And the third one is called the sacred gifts of greeting. The sacred gifts of greeting. Those three are the principal types of sacrifices. Again, Holocaust, Al-Ola. The second, the minha, which is the gift offering. It's a gift. And the third one, greeting. Everything is burned in the first one. The second is a gift. And the third is a greeting. Pardon? Is it the peacemaking? Is it the peacemaking? You're you're thinking the right way, Lilian. We're going to get to it. Is that third offering the peacemaking? We're going to get to it. These offerings could be included in a variety of celebrations, public and private, voluntary and obligatory. And they serve a multiplicity function. And I'm, I'm going to give you a cheat sheet in a minute about those. I told you that the first seven, sacrifi- seven chapters are all about sacrifices. I just talked about the first three. Chapters four and five deals with sacrifices of expiation. Expiation. And they were therefore more limited in application. They were offered for the purpose of securing God's forgiveness... Their presentation was obligatory, pursuant to transgression of religious law, committed either by omission or through inadvertent violation. Omission or inadvertent violation. And in most cases, the sacrifice served to remove the charge against the offenders, restore them to a proper relationship with God, restore their membership in the religious community. Remove the charge, restore them to a proper relationship with God, and restore their membership in the religious community. I'm going to get back to that because this is a very important point that we have to make here. Chapter 6 and 7 are really a professional manual for the priesthood. It's a Torah, an instruction on how you offer those sacrifices. How you're supposed to go about doing it. Okay? So this gives, gives us an overview of the first seven chapters. first three are the most important sacrifices. The second two are for expiation. Chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 are about how you go about offering the sacrifice to the priests. Concerning the ritual of expiation, I want to make a point here that, has, that is going to address a confusion I see often in church, particularly among Eastern Rite folks. Now, listen carefully to this because this is going to come as a shocker. The ritual of expiation was not meant, not meant, for intentional or premeditated offenses. The ritual of expi- expiation was not meant 
for intentional or premeditated offenses? Oh, good question. What is expiation? To expiate is to pay back, to um, essentially suffer your sentence. You're expiating the injustice you've caused. You're paying back, right? Yeah, if there is a word you don't understand, please don't hesitate. Ask. It could be I'm pronouncing it wrong. I do that often. So, the ritual expiation was not meant for intentional or premeditated offenses. So, what would happen if you committed an intentionally an offense? Pardon? I'm talking about the Israelites. What would happen? There is punishment. There is no sacrifice to pay for you. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Everything we're going to be talking about is all about the things we've done unintentionally. Yeah? Not things we've done intentionally. For those, there are punishments. And that's it. Huh. I just want you to think about that for a second. God is giving you a law by which you're going to live. So let me make it really concrete, because here's the deal. Most of us don't have a calf or a ram in our backyard these days. Right? We don't. So we can't really relate. Most of us aren't farmers. Any farmers here? Anybody has? No, so I thought. Most of us have never seen a calf other than in little neat packages in the store. We can go get a piece of it, right? That's all we... Right, okay. So we don't really connect to it. We don't have any emotional connection to this. So let me talk to you about something that will hit home. A dog or a cat. So you've committed unintentionally. You're walking by and, or not, 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 not even that. Let's take a better example. A relative of yours died. You went and you helped with the burial. What happens to you when you help with the burial? You touch a dead body. You're what? Unclean. Unclean. What is God asking you to do? Did you do anything wrong as far as morally speaking? No, you did what you're supposed to do, right? Okay, you're unclean. So God tells you in order to be clean again, you come to me and you're going to offer a dog. Now, you have seven dogs, right? And, uh, and then uh, one of them is 12 years old. He's blind, he's lame, and you know he's going to about die. And then one, you, the one you really like is in the prime of his life. Strong, obedient, really nice dog. God says, that's the one you're going to offer. Huh. Not for something that you did, like, you know, stole the bank or I don't know. Right? No, you just buried Somebody, part of your family. You have to offer your best dog. Now, those of you who are now nurturing an intention of building a golden calf, please stand. Okay, let's take it further. Because some of you don't have dogs. Your car. You buried your parent. You did your duty. You're unclean. God says you bring me your best car. And you're going to trash it. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? I hope now you start to understand what those Israelites had to go through. Because that's what God was asking them. A calf in the prime of his life is about to be productive. 
it's a it's a high piece of technology. There's a lot to be had of that calf. That's the one you're going to offer. Because you were unclean. You were walking by, minding your own business, and a leper touched you. You're unclean. Go grab that calf. How does that make you feel? Great, right? So underlying everything we're talking about, what is God trying to teach them? What is the one thing that we don't appreciate, that we underappreciate, really? God's holiness. God's holiness. We do not understand how holy is God. What does that mean? What does it mean to say God is holy? We sing it, don't we? We have to. Right? Holy, holy, holy. All right, how many of you understand what that means? God is holy. What does that mean? Practically speaking. See, we lost that. We don't have an appreciation of God's holiness. Neither did they. So he was teaching them. And you think that those kinds of sacrifices that he asked of them were getting away free with? Really? So, it should be emphasized here. As the workings of the sacrificial system are introduced to the reader, listener, that the laws of the Torah, I'm quoting, by the way, from the Jewish Publication Society commentary on Leviticus. So this is a Jewish scholar talking. The laws of the Torah did not permit Israelites to expiate, to receive forgiveness, to pay for intentional or premeditated offenses by means of sacrifice. You couldn't do it. There was no vicarious ritual remedy. There is no way to save yourself through sacrifice. Substitution of one's property or wealth. You can't say, oh, I killed my brother. Here are 12 calves. I stole from my aunt. Here are two calves. You could not do that. It's hard for us to comprehend that. That was the truth. You just could not do that. The law did not have that power in it. In those cases, when it was done intentionally, the law dealt directly with the offender, imposing real punishments and acting to prevent recurrences. Example, a young man is found gathering wood during the Sabbath. They bring him to Moses, and they tell him this is what he was doing. And what is Moses' answer? Stone him. They did that. You see, we are so imbued in the culture of mercy that that sounds like cruel. Why? Because we take mercy for granted. We take mercy for granted. It's our due. We are entitled to mercy. There wasn't any. They couldn't have it. Yeah? Ritual expiation, meaning sacrifices, was restricted to situations where reasonable doubt existed as to the willfulness of the offense. Even then, restitution was always required where loss or injury to another person had occurred. So if you've done something unintentional, walk by, you broke somebody's glass. Right? You killed a calf, not unintentionally. It wasn't your intent. I don't know how you would do that unintentionally. But let's assume you, you're Superman or something. I don't know. In that case, you had to pay back. And give another 15 or 30% on top of what you have taken. And even though you didn't mean to, 
The mistaken notion that ritual worship could atone for criminality or intentional religious desecration was persistently attacked by the prophets of Israel, who considered it a major threat to the entire covenantal relationship between Israel and God. What did Israel do? Huh. They obfuscated. They took that ritual of sacrifice that was for unintentional things we've done, and they applied it wholesale to things that are intentionally. Oh, I stole from my brother. Here's a calf. I'm home free. Now, do you think we do that? Do we do that? Mm-hmm. Among the Eastern Rite folks, oh yeah, we do that. We do it every Sunday. In the Eastern Rite liturgies, Maronite and others, the idea of asking forgiveness is very explicit. Yes? Very explicit. But we've always interpreted it to mean that those offenses and things and guilts that we are being forgiven of during the liturgy are those intentional things that we did. Hence, there is no need for us to go to confession. We're being forgiven in Mass. It's over. Same same deal. The same behavior. We are understanding those words in liturgy that actually forgive venial sins and only venial sins and things we have done. For instance, in the Maronite liturgy we say, things we have done without knowledge. What does that mean, things we have done without knowledge? The things we've done unintentionally. We're asking for forgiveness because the Eucharist on its own, has the power to forgive those things. But that does not absolve us from going to confession for the things we've done intentionally. Same deal, same behavior. You see that? Okay? So in summary, the prescriptions of chapter 1 through 7 outline the main components of the biblical sacrificial system as it was administered by Israelite priesthood. And we're going to focus tonight on three things. The outer court of the tent, the three types of offering. I'm going to talk mostly about the burnt offering. Okay. So, the outer court of the tent. The reason I'm mentioning this is because um, it's good for us to understand how the tent was structured. I got um, a couple of cheat sheets for you, so um, please uh, take one. And distribute this around. Hopefully there's enough. I made 30 copies. If not, please share. So again, the tent was a structure. It was a portable structure that represented, symbolized the mountain of Zion where God dwelt. So God is dwelling in the Holy of Holies, inside that structure. And he's unapproachable by anyone except Moses at the time. And only under certain conditions. And then he's instructing Moses on that sacrificial system he wants to put in place. So that tent was divided into three parts. First, you have the outer part of the tent. In that outer part, you had the altar of sacrifice. It was a fairly large structure where all the sacrifice took place, meaning all the offerings had to be burned on that altar. Next to it, to the left, if I were to look at it, if I'm in the entrance, standing at the west side of the um, tent, looking towards the east, what I would see is the altar, and then I would see the uh, heap of ash to the left of it. Behind it, there is the bronze laver, 
And you have that on the back of those papers uh, that I'm uh, distributing. Hopefully there is enough. There's the bronze laver where the priests washed themselves before they could walk inside the holy, which is the second part. The holy is closed by a curtain. In the holy, you had the altar of incense. Eventually, there'll be also be the table of showbread. And then in the temple, there'll be the candelabra, representing the light to the world. And then there will be a third partition behind which was the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat, where the Shekinah, the presence of God, dwelt. Those are the three partitions of that holy. All the activity, all the sacrificial activity took part in the outer tent. The priests officiated barefoot. Barefoot. So when St. Francis walked barefoot, when St. Philip Neri walked barefoot, when some monks walked barefoot, that tradition goes back to that tent. They were required to, uh, to, to officiate barefoot. Okay? And that outer tent looked pretty much like a slaughterhouse, because that's what it was. Animals were brought forth. The animals were killed. The blood was poured on the altar. Sometimes on the altar of incense. We'll talk about that, particularly in the case of priest, priestly um, transgressions. And then the offering was put on a large griddle where it was burnt or cooked and then eaten right there and then as the portion of the priest. So, you as an Israelite, if you had to offer, make an offering, you would bring one of the animals that are permitted. A calf, a ram, a lamb, a, a, a pigeon and a turtle, depending on how wealthy you were, to the door. In the case of the Ola, which we're going to talk about in a minute, let me, let me go, go forward with, our, with, 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 with the order of this text before I actually start talking about this, because I, I want to bring your attention to certain de- details about it. So I'm not going to read the details of this. I'll leave that with you you could actually uh, go through it. And then I also have given you the five specific types of offerings outlined in Leviticus on the other part of the page in a table, so you could at least have an idea what those offerings were about and some of their uh, highlights. So, for instance, you can see that um, the, the headings are the offering, the purpose, God's portion, priest's portion, and the symbolism. So for the burnt offering, uh, we know the Holocaust, we know that Christ was offered for us. Right? So it points to, there's a sacramental side to this whole offering, uh, sacrificial system we're going to address in its own uh, study. I'm not going to dwell on it right now, but you can already see it here, glimpsed in this table. The offering, in all cases, was to be spotless without blemish. Even the appearance of it had to be perfect. It is always domesticated animal raised by men. Wild animals were never used as offerings. Why? Anybody here would have an issue sacrificing a coyote? That costs you anything? No. 
right? Your dog is a different story, right? Your car, and in the case of the youth, your iPhone, those cost you something. There is this notion in the concept of a sacrifice that has got to cost you something, right? So underlying all of this, there is a notion of suffering. There is a notion of pain. God is requiring that of them. Is He requiring this of us? Requiring, not suggesting, requiring. Yeah, in more than one way. We're going to, get talk, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. Now, here's an interesting take on this. Offering in Hebrew is korban, which obviously, for those of us, again, who speak Arabic, how do we call you the Eucharist? Exact same word, right? Korban. Sacrifice comes from the Latin. Let's see if there are any Latin buffs here. Anyone can tell me what sacrifice means? What is the root of it? It's very illuminating. Sacrifice comes from the combination of two words. Sacra facem. Make holy. Make holy. So when you're offering a sacrifice, what are you doing? I want to hear you say it. Making holy. Let's wait on the ourselves. That, that's a very good point. But you're making holy. That's a sacrifice. So when you go to Mass, what are you doing? What do we call, what is the long name of the Mass? The holy. Yeah. Holy sacrifice of the Mass. So what is your participation in the Mass? What are you supposed to do there? Make holy. We haven't said what the object is yet. Make holy. Make holy what? Raise your voice. I, don't, I need to hear you. Ourselves. Ourselves. Fair. How? How do you make holy yourselves when you go to Mass? Okay, what does that mean, offer yourself as a sacrifice? You know, okay, but what does that mean practically? To unite yourself with Christ, to offer yourself as... What does that mean? Free from, from sin, very good. Receive the Eucharist, Corbono, yes, very good. But there is a fundamental element... Okay, to die. How do you die? Yeah, yeah, but how do you do that? You see, here's the deal. If when you go to Mass, you're not willing, you're not willing to suffer for your worst enemy, you've missed Mass. Oh, it's more than forgive. Forgive is a very good starting point. But before we get to this, let me reiterate what I said, because the way I'm saying it, I'm doing this on purpose, obviously, sounds shocking, but really it shouldn't be. Let me tell you why. Let me repeat it. If when you go to Mass, you're not willing to suffer for your worst enemy, you've missed Mass. Why am I saying that? Am I making this up? Okay, good, good. I'm happy to hear that I'm not making this up. Where am I getting this from? When I look at the crucifix. Father, they don't know. Okay. 
Can you say that about the people with whom you have enmity? From all your heart, like he did? That's your sacrifice. That's what you're making holy. The world. The world depends on you. Sometimes you might go to Mass. Sometimes you may be discouraged because you have friends and families and relatives and others who are not in the faith. And you're concerned about their salvation. And you might not see any progress. Because we like to measure progress by our own time. Hmm? You might not see progress. But if you truly, truly are willing to offer sacrifice, to make holy, then the best way to do it is to leave the object to God. Because if you go there with the intention of making someone specific holy, guess what? There's a part of selfishness in you that you haven't let go of. You understand what I'm saying? You're basically going to say to God, okay, God, look, I'm here to pray for my son, for my daughter, for my cousin, for somebody. Those other people out there, I can't, couldn't care less about them. It's just him. Because God is saying back to you, daughter, son, these other people, they're my beloved children. I love them just the same. Are you here for me? Or are you here for you? Everybody does his own job. You can look at it this way, if you will. But the question you've got to ask yourself is this. Are you an imitator of Christ? Do you want to imitate Him? Well, you better be, because this is what He told us we have to do if we want to get to heaven. So we, it's not like we don't have a choice. Be imitators of me. You have to imitate Him. You have to do what He did. He shows the way. I am the way. And then Christ didn't say, I do my job, you do yours, and the cows will be taken care of. I mean, I wish he said that. Trust me, I wish he said that. He didn't. Right? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Yeah. But that is what Mass is all about. Make holy. By your sufferings. By your prayers. And by the little things you do every day. Smiling when you don't feel like it. Going an extra step where you don't feel like it. Bending down, picking a piece of paper, even if your back is hurting, and offering it up. You're making holy. Get in the habit. When you're home, you're doing the dishes. Every dish you wash, well, my dishwasher is broken, so it's a very hot topic in my household these days. Every dish you wash, every spoon you wash, say to yourself, I'm making holy. Because that's what you're doing. If you offer it up. Pardon? She will get advantage. She will get advantage. Well, yes, but that's now how you, well, you can think of it this way, and that's fine. God will not be offended. Okay? But no matter what advantage you're thinking of, it's going to fall short compared to what God has prepared for you. Right? Okay. So as I said Earlier, there is a penalty. I didn't say that, but let me say it now. There's a penalty for ignoring the laws of the offering. Not only do you have to offer specific animals, but you have to do it a very specific way. And if you don't, there are very stringent penalties. We're going to see that. For instance, when the two sons of Aaron went into the holy to offer sacrifice and used, as Scripture says, a strange fire. They didn't take the fire from the altar because that fire was lit by the Holy Spirit. 
They didn't take it from there. They used their own, which to some interpreters mean they were actually performing magic. Right? God killed them on the spot. They died. The holiness of God is not to be messed with. And today, we are all in grave danger of offending him, even if you don't mean to, because the constructs of our churches are not there to highlight, in many cases, the holiness of God. They're there to highlight our cuteness and how social we are. I have not, nothing against social gathering and people greeting each other and talking, but I cannot tell you, the more you study this, the more you go, walk deeper into it, the more you understand how much God and His Blessed Mother are truly offended when two people are speaking loudly in the, inside the church. It offends them because these two people are standing at the foot of Calvary while Christ is dying and talking about yesterday's meal and supper. It's offensive. Now, I'm not blaming these people. Most cases, we've lost that. That's what I'm trying to say. We, we, we just lost it. We, don't have, we have to recover it. Right? And it's very important to recover it. All right. Now, here's a couple of uh, no, notices about, notes I want to make about the liturgical offering and the nature of the offering. Back to Lilian's point. When you read this, the, the description of the offering, pay attention to that. There is an alternation between the activity of the priest and the offerer. So, the offerer generally puts the animal to death and cuts it up. That's something the offerer has to do. It's his sacrifice. The priest handles the sprinkling of its blood and its burning on the altar of sacrifice. The offerer is much more involved in the process of sacrifice, we might think, because there is a whole back and forth um, exchange of words between the priest and the offerer, which are not recorded here. And the reason is to really help the Israelite understand, I'm making a sacrifice. And remember, I'm making a sacrifice. Well, let's see why. Because now I'm going to talk to you about the burnt offering, the Ola, the first of them. This is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. This sacrifice, called the Ola, the Holocaust, was burned to ashes on the altar of burnt offerings. No part of it was eaten, either by priests or donors. It was completely consumed by fire. Right, your best dog, your best car, your best anything, completely consumed by fire. Okay. What is the purpose of this offering? Just one thing. One thing only. That he may be accepted... Before the Lord. Leviticus 1.3. That he may be accepted before the Lord. What does that mean? The reason you're making this offering. Is so that God can tolerate your presence. In front of him. That's it. Nothing else. The Ola was a signal to God. That his worshippers desired to bring their needs to his attention. Its purpose was to secure an initial response from him. Frequently, the Ola was the first sacrifice in rites that included other offerings as well. So, you have, to, you have a rite of expiation. You start with the Ola. There goes your first dog. Just to be in the presence of God, you have to make that offering. That's it. 
You haven't gotten to the reason why you're there. In that case, you had to lay your hands on the animal. Sometimes this is mistakenly understood as if you're sort of transferring your sins over to the animal. But remember, you're offering this animal, the Ola, just so you can be in presence of God. You're not transferring anything. There's no download going on here. Right? So why would you put your hands on the animal? It was meant as a confirmation that you intend this animal to be exclusively used for this purpose and only this purpose. You're consecrating this animal. Right? We saw the imposition laying of hands in our liturgies when a priest is ordained. There's a laying of the hands, the bishop. Meaning what? He is consecrated to one thing and one thing only. He's reserved for the Lord as a sacrifice. As a sacrifice. Okay. The origin of the Ola does not, does not, is not in Leviticus. It is found in the book of Genesis. And briefly, we find it first in chapter 8 with Noah offered a burnt offering after the flood waters had subsided. Noah offered burnt offerings of all the clean 23 animals. And that would be really a fascinating question to wonder why is it that Noah offered only clean animals and not the other ones. Okay, but we're not going to hit that right now here. God instructed Abraham to offer up Isaac as a whole burnt offering. In Genesis 22, verse 2 and following. So that the ram which God placed in Isaac's, um, uh, in, which God brought to Abraham was offered as a burnt offering. When Moses told Pharaoh that Israel must take their cattle with them into the wilderness to worship their God, first time he met him, Moses told Pharaoh, allow us to go three days journey in the wilderness so we make a whole burnt offering again. And there are other cases in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, offered a whole burnt offering. And when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, they offered a whole burnt offering. The Ola is offered in conjunction with other sacrifices. It's the first one to say that you want to be in the presence of God. Now here's how many of those were offered a day. How many holocausts were offered every day. Every day, in the morning and in the evening, there were a whole bird offering to God. We, and the references would be Exodus 29, Numbers 28, and 2 Chronicles 2 verse 4. An additional burnt offering must be offered each Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath, we're at 3. That's in Numbers 28, 11. At the celebration of the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, along a new grain offering at the, east, at the Feast of Weeks. When you do a grain offering, you have to do a holocaust. At the Feast of Trumpets, on any sacred day in the seventh month, and a celebration of the new moon. When they celebrated the new moon, they had to offer a whole burnt offering. You know why? Here's the first very interesting overlay of the true religion over paganism. Worship of the moon was very prevalent in the ancient East, especially the new moon, because it always signaled rebirth. So what God did is that he took that habit and overlaid on top of it the true sacrifice so that they can direct his attention to their attention to him. 
as a, as a cute anecdote, anecdote, the name of the village I come from is called Monastery of the Moon, Der Lamar. And when you study the history of this village, you find out that the Phoenicians had actually built a temple where they worshipped the moon. So when the region was Christianized, guess what they did? They built a monastery on top of that temple and then kept the name. So, fairly common. It is, as I said, it's offered in conjunction with another sacrifice, guilt offering, sin offering, votive or free will offering, chief offering, new grain offering. I'm not going into the details. Part of the cleansing ritual. If somebody was ritually unclean, to make him clean, you have to start with the Holocaust offering on top of other offerings. All right, so, for instance, cleansing of a leper, of a man with a discharge, of a, of a woman with abnormal discharge, a Nazarite who has unintentionally defiled by contact of a dead body, purification of the congregation after that unwittingly failed to observe one of God's commandments. Unwittingly. They have to offer the whole burnt offering. A burnt offering was required for the purification and consecration of Aaron as well as the Levites. So, here's a really interesting comment by Ibn Ezra, who was a uh, Jewish commentator. He said this. He calls attention to Exodus 30.12 and he says, Each individual shall pay the Lord a ransom for himself on being enrolled, that no plague may come upon them through their being enrolled. So, the purpose of the Holocaust offering is not an expiation. We are not paying back for something. Rather, it's a protection from God's wrath. That's the purpose of the offering. It's a protection from God's wrath. Proximity to God was inherently dangerous for both the worshiper and the priests. Even if there had been no particular offense to anger him. Just being in the presence of God is dangerous. Even if you didn't do anything to anger him. The favorable acceptance of the Allah signaled God's willingness to be approached and served as a kind of a ransom or redemption from divine wrath. Ransom or redemption from divine wrath. This is again taken from the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society Commentary. But notice those words. Ransom or protection from divine wrath. Christ died for us. Yeah? How can we stand before God the Father? We can stand before God the Father because His Son died for us. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? On our own, none of us could stand before God and live. His holiness, His God's holiness cannot tolerate the slightest sin. We would die instantly if, in our sinful state, we were to stand before God. Christ died for us so that His sacrifice, which has infinite value, can act as a holocaust, the one and only efficacious holocaust we need to be able to stand before God. Okay, well... I'll make one more comment, actually, before I, I, I close with this observation. 
Here's an interesting tidbit. The Emperor Augustus, so we're moving, we're fast-forwarding here almost to the time of Christ, actually to the time of Christ, had a daily burnt offering brought for him of two lambs and a bullock at the Jerusalem temple. And ever afterwards, this sacrifice was regarded as indicating that the Jewish nation recognized the Roman emperor as their ruler. So when they stood in front of Pilate and said, we have no king but Caesar, there was basis for it. They're offering those sacrifices for the emperor. Daily. Hence, at the commencement of the Jewish war, Eleazar, the Jewish war, we're talking about the Maccabees. Eleazar Maccabee carried its rejection, and this became, as it were, the open mark of the rebellion. That war started with precisely a rejection of that sacrifice offered for that pagan emperor, which was against the laws of Israel. All right. So, the Ola is this sacrifice burnt completely to stand before God and be accepted by Him. It protects against God's wrath. We go to Mass, and when we step inside the church, what is our Holocaust? Christ, right? Objectively, it is Jesus Christ. So as we step inside the church, do we think, do we think to thank God the Father for having given His Son so that we may stand in His presence? Do we do an act of examination of conscience? At least think about, am I worthy to be here? More importantly, can you think as you step into the church of one sacrifice you did this week that you can bring with you? A whole burnt offering. Have you done something in your week Something that costs you something. For no other reason. Not because you want to pray for somebody. Not because you have someone you want to save. Not because you want something from God. You did it for no other reason than to say, God, I love you. I'm expecting nothing in return. I just want to say, I love you. If you didn't, your bowl is empty. You're walking empty-handed. God will receive you with joy. And God will cover you with His grace like He did with the prodigal son. But the prodigal son came once. Came back once. Do we want to be prodigal sons every week? Why are you in Mass? Why are you going there? Think about that. And then ask Our Lady... Ask her, when you pray the rosary, ask her before you go to bed at night, ask her to help open your heart to God's holiness. Because nobody knows His holiness the way she does. Enroll in the school of Our Lady to learn about God's holiness. So think, what will you make holy? God gives you many, many occasions during the week. Don't squander them. His, th- these are His gifts for you. Do not squander them. Let us finish with a word of prayer and then we'll take some questions.
name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you and glorify you for every good thought, every good intention that you've put into our hearts. Lord, help us not to forget them and help us to put them into effect. Make us true worshipers of your Son. Help us to fervently live the Mass. Help us, Lord, to truly understand that our presence, our life, and all that we have is forfeit for you. We are being made sacred. We're made holy by your Son. Help us to bow our heads and truly follow in his steps as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Questions? Yes. Oh, that. Okay. 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 Yes. Let me see if I, repeat, if I remember what I said. What I said was that if you're not willing to go to Mass and suffer for your worst enemy, you've missed Mass. I mean, I don't mean by that you, you didn't fulfill your obligations. You obviously fulfilled your obligation. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about fulfilling an obligation. We're talking about truly living Mass and receiving all the graces that God has for you. To the degree that you're willing to imitate His Son, to that degree, He's willing to pour the grace into your heart. He's pouring all the graces He could. It's just that your heart becomes wider when you say yes to His Son. That's all. You understand? Is that? Okay, good. All right. Yes. Well, I don't really know what the question is, but let me say this. Uh, it seems to me that you're alluding to the fact that when what God did is that He essentially took some of the animals that the Jews were worshipping and turn those into sacrificial animals. I think there is a truth to that, because we know that the golden calf is Apis, the Egyptian god of parties. And they didn't say that, but that's what it is in modern terms. And it looked like a, a calf. And so they had to sacrifice a calf. And those animals that actually were uh, sacrificed in Egypt those were not allowed to be sacrificed. So there is a process of purification from Egyptian cults that was happening also in Sinai. Definitely. Have I addressed your point? Oh, that. We'll hit on this. This is Psalm 50. Yes. The question is, did he want them to sacrifice animals? Of course not. In a fundamental sense, what is God going to do with all the sacrifice of animals? Right? And we'll hit on that a couple of lectures from now. So hold on to this. Yeah, that's a very important question. Why the sacrifice of all those animals? Yeah. Yes. This is a very good question. How do you correct talking in church? There are really two ways of correcting it. One is, I would say, uh, is a sort of a judicial, if you will. You set rules of please don't talk in church, and you try to you know, enforce it as much as you can, but it only goes so far. The thing is about talking in church... It's, it's, it's a symptom of a much deeper problem, right? So to correct that, you're talking about effecting a true change in the Catholic culture, where we become less, uh, we become less influenced by the American general culture and more influenced by the Catholic culture. 
Right? It's a rediscovery of what it means to be Catholic and be committed to it. Yeah? So it's a harder problem to solve. That's why uh, Pope Benedict XVI said, before the Mass can be reformed, hearts must change. Without a true change of hearts, you can change all you want in the liturgy, you're still going to get where we are right now. Yes? Very good question. The question is, uh, sometimes you go to Mass, you're trying to focus, and then there are younger couples with kids who are noisy. Right? Should there be in the, in the, in the sanctuary, should they be in the uh, crying room? What should you do? I don't know if there is a specific instruction from the church over this. So I'm going to give you my take on it. This is only me talking. I personally, and this is an evolution for me. right? So I'll start by telling you something. I don't do well with noise. I'm saying it mildly. Okay? My wife may say it differently, but I'm saying it very, or my children for that matter. I don't do well with noise. Okay, you're with me? Okay. But your question is really, really a very good question because it's bringing in a very important point. And this is the point. We have to understand that oftentimes God wants us to go to Mass and He offers us the gift of suffering because He loves us. He offers us the gift of suffering. So let me back away a little bit from your particular example and take another one that I'm sure many of us had to deal with, distractions. How many of you have been distracted during the act of consecration? Truly distracted. Left and right and center, you're thinking about your mind as right? Okay. Distractions. So they're not children, they're distractions. The same effect. You're with me? Okay. We can't put distractions in the crying room, can we now? There is no way to do that. How do you deal with distractions? And why do they hit you? Because God is offering you the gift of suffering. He's trying to tell you, I don't necessarily want you to be here to enjoy yourself. I want you to do my will. And what if I come to you in distractions? Will you get irritated? Will you get upset? Will you get angry? Or will you offer me your distractions and the fact that you're weak? Christ fell three times. Are we supposed to stand without ever falling? Do you understand? So those kids were God's gift for you. And your distractions is that sacrifice you offered because you suffered from them, didn't you? You suffered from being distracted. Great. You have something to offer to God. You're suffering. Do you understand? So therefore, my own position over children in church, that's me speaking, and I know people will have opposite point of view with very good arguments. I don't want to argue. Is that I would rather have the children in the body of the church, not separate. That's me. For these reasons. When I go to Mass, I surrender what is going to happen to God. Sometimes I am so distracted that uh, I could be just as well on Mars. Okay? I don't deserve, I do not deserve to enjoy Mass. So when it comes, it's a gift. But I don't go there expecting it.
I don't even go there expecting to be able to say, one hour father without destruction. Because usually I can't. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Okay. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. That's a very good question. The question is, are we doing anything in Mass to represent Christ expiating for our sins? Is that the question? Absolutely. It's the whole act of consecration. It's the represent of make, it's making real the, the sacrifice of Christ on the altar. Oh, you mean us? No. The only thing we can do is participate, offer ourselves. That's all we can do. Because he makes it possible. Well, you're saying taking part in the Mass is taking part. Those words, taking part, are very... Yeah, I understand, but they're very heavy. I can be present in the Mass the way I'm present at a football match. I'm, not pre- I'm, I'm, I'm there bodily. I'm just watching what's going on. I haven't offered a thing. Not enough. You have to be aware of why you're there. What have you done in your week? Mass is not an island or a ghetto in my week. There's my week. Whoops, there's Mass. Then I can forget all about Mass, go back to my week. Can't do that. The sacrifice of the Mass is part of your week. Your whole week is a preparation for it. Your whole week is a thanksgiving for it. That's Mass. Right? It's getting into that mindset. Yes. Okay, the question is, how can you explain to people... Uh, that suffering is good, but you shouldn't suffer more than you have to. I agree with them. You shouldn't suffer more than you have to. Nor should you suffer more than you can bear. Right? So, how do you do that? Back to what we were saying earlier. Abandonment to the will of God. God will lead you if you let Him. The biggest problem we have, the biggest obstacle, is that we just don't want to. Right? We don't want to. And he knows that, and he's merciful, and he's patient, and he waits on us, and he's not pushing us. But it's, it's the fact that what's going to, de- essentially what's going to determine our level of glory in heaven is how much we're we willing to be open to his call on earth. Yes? And that's suffering. Yeah, that's cool. So kind of, you know, find the, kind of the minimum suffering you need, and then stop right there. Okay, what's wrong with that attitude? And it's not that it's minimalistic. I don't think there's anything wrong with that particular element. What's wrong with that attitude? It's the same error as when you hear a guy coming to you and saying, okay, I was with my girlfriend in a car. How far is too far? What's wrong with that attitude? Okay, we're in control. That's number one. But number two, which is connected to this, it's utilitarian. Right? Okay, answer them this way. All right, I want you to go home. Look at your wife in the face and tell her, Honey, please tell me the minimal amount of love you need from me. Because I want to enjoy life. And now come back and tell me how she's going to feel about that. Right? I'll bring you flowers once a year. Is that enough? Okay, how about twice? What is the minimum amount of flowers you need from me to be happy? Minimum. Let's negotiate. Do you get it? See how wrong it is? No, they're doing this with God. How how is that going to work? Look, (laughs) God is really simple. He's basically saying one thing only. I want you to love me because I created you for love. That's all. We complicate things. All right, Lord. What is the minimum amount of love you need from me? Because I'm kind of busy. I have a bunch of other things I need to do. 
what, what I need to do now? Just give me the list. I'll have a checklist. Okay, I, I just going to fulfill those things. No wonder many religions are checklists. Do A, B, C, D, E, and you're done. You're, you're good to go. Okay, you, go ahead. Meet a young girl or a young man, sit at a restaurant, and open up a checklist. Open up a spreadsheet and start asking him or her, what is the minimal things you need to be happy? I just want to know. Then I'll set up my program with a proper reminder, and I'll do those things. See how far that goes. You understand? All right. Yes. Ah, very good question. Why can't you relate love with happiness, not with suffering? Okay. Okay, you, you, true. You would not know what happiness is without suffering. But here's the deal. In your question, there are two types of love which are fighting each other. Love of self, I want to be happy. Love of the other, I need to get up and do stuff that the other wants that don't necessarily make me happy. You can't do both. You're right. I understand you don't like suffering. Nobody does. Christ himself held suffering in contempt. It's not something you have to like, but it's something that is necessary if you want to love. And your joy comes from loving. Whoever holds to his life or whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for the sake of the kingdom will gain eternal life. And there is your happiness. So look at it this way. Let me put it this way. Here's the deal. You have a hundred bucks. You can spend a hundred bucks or you can invest it. Wait a couple of years and get a million. Which of the two you want to do? Suffer. No, no, seriously. What happens when you put your hundred bucks away? Seriously. You couldn't spend it. You had to sacrifice stuff you wanted. A hundred is nothing. Ten thousand dollars. Retirement. You're putting money aside every year. That's money you could take to go on vacation, do this and that. What are you doing? You're suffering for reward, aren't you? How is that any different? This is a lesson in catechesis. Same principle. And I'm going to add one more thing to you, to to what I said, that you need to understand. It's not a one-way street. Here's the problem, and that's the trick that the devil plays on us. We think that when we suffer, we're alone. Right? We're alone. There's nobody with us. But Jesus told his disciples, unless I go to my father's house, I could not send you what? Yeah, what did he call the Holy Spirit? Yes, okay, the paraclete. What does that mean? The advocate, the advocate, and the consoler. So, if you truly want to understand the multidimensional aspect of suffering in the context of a divine relationship, you truly have to develop a profound devotion to the Holy Spirit. Because when you're suffering, you're not alone. You're in conversation with God. Yes. Oh, can you do it with happiness? Yes, you can. Of course. But that's the supernatural happiness that comes to you from the Holy Spirit. That's what He gives you. Yeah. How come the saints who are great sufferers are happy people? Because of the, because of the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit that fills their hearts with His consolation. That's why.
So thank you. It's important not to understand suffering only in this human dimension because it's scary then. Myself, I'm, I can't do a thing. Right? I can't do a thing on my own. But if God is with me and God is supporting me, it's a different story. Okay, good. Good, good. Yes. I don't, generally speaking, you will almost never hear me criticize a priest. I'm not going to do that. Okay? Having said that, there is a rule of conduct for all of us, priest or not. If God gave you money, thanks be to God, He gave you money. There's no reason to feel guilty about it. What you need to do is simply say, All right, Lord, you gave me the money. What shall I do with it? And then follow His direction. If He didn't give you money, take it away from you. All right, Lord, you didn't give me money. What am I supposed to do? Same attitude. If you can see all these things as a conversation with God, money, wealth, children, family, spouses, people around you, solitude, if you can constantly think of yourself as being in conversation with God through all of these things, then it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, none of that is going to matter for you. What matters is you're talking to Him. And that's all. Yeah? Yeah, the, the health and wealth. Okay. So, first of all, you're talking about the covenant. Okay. Obey me, you're blessed. Disobey me, you're cursed. Covenant. Yeah? Okay. Um, wealth can be part of it. If you need it, he'll give it to you. If you need it. God is not going to give you a poison gift if you're following him. If wealth is going to take you to hell, he's not going to give it to you. If wealth is going to help you attain heaven and save others, he's going to give it to you. Simple as that. But it's not about if you trust in God, then therefore you're going to be wealthy. And if you don't, you're going to be poor. Well, in that case, what do we say about Our Lady and St. Joseph? As far as I know, they didn't own the bank. Right, but it's it's a means to an end. I didn't say there was anything no, wrong I with know, that. Maybe that priest is using it. yes. Maybe the priest is using the money for school. Maybe he's constructing something. Maybe he's opening an orphanage. Maybe I don't know what he's doing. Right, but whether it's a priest or us, we're all in the same boat from that angle. No difference. We're all called to do God's will, whatever means He gives us. Yeah. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.